MSW Media. Thanks to our new sponsor, Mave, for supporting our podcast. Dogs need unprocessed, high-protein, low-carb diets that kibble and fresh foods just don't deliver. Make the switch to raw today. Right now, Mave is offering $40 off your first order at meetmave.com slash dailybeans. And thanks to Zbiotics for supporting the Daily Beans. Zbiotics engineered a pre-alcohol probiotic. Go to zbiotics.com slash dailybeans to get 15% off your first order when you use code dailybeans at checkout. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, March 27th, 2023. Today, the Manhattan Grand Jury will meet as a possible indictment looms. Prosecutors accept a deal with George Santos in his Brazilian fraud case. Protests erupt in Israel after Benjamin Netanyahu fires the defense minister. A note with a death threat and a white powdery substance is sent to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. The Michigan school shooter's parents will stand trial for manslaughter charges. Jack Smith homes in on conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding in the January 6th federal criminal investigation. Nine military bases are dropping their Confederate names. And the Department of Justice files an opposition to Pete Navarro's motion for a stay to avoid returning presidential records. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everybody. Pretty, pretty long set of headlines. Nothing like last Monday's, but that was a pretty good one. We had like, it looks like about a minute's worth of headlines, which again, is close to the record. But that last Monday's beans really just smashed it with nearly two minutes worth of headlines. Dana's out today. She's traveling. She'll be back with me tomorrow. So remember when the Department of Justice sued to get emails that Pete Navarro sent using a private ProtonMail account back? They sued to get those back. Those emails were about COVID-related stuff and are considered presidential records. Well, Navarro was like, no, they had a big fight and the courts decided you have to hand them all over. Navarro's trying to appeal, having to hand them over, and has asked the district court to stay that order to return them to the government. And now the DOJ has filed an opposition to that stay. It's pretty fun. Now, Pete Strzok and I will go over it in detail on the next cleanup on aisle 45 this Wednesday. Also, Robert Costa on Face the Nation had new reporting about the Jack Smith investigation into the January 6th fraudulent elector scheme. And he said, according to sources, several witnesses have been asked questions about Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and what levers of national security Donald Trump was trying to use in the days leading up to January 6th. And also they're saying that it seems that Jack is looking at conspiracy charges for obstructing an official proceeding. These are the two charges we've been talking about forever. Barb McQuaid over a year ago wrote a whole pros memo, a a sample prosecution memo for just security. We, We interviewed her about that. And the two charges are Title 18 U.S. Code 371 and Title 18 U.S. Code 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding. So that's conspiracy, 371, defraud the United States and uh, obstructing an official proceeding, which is the 1512. It's the 1512 that carries the 20-year max sentence. 371 carries, I believe, a three-year max sentence. We'll see. We'll see what is happening. But that is the news that's coming out. We're going to go over all of that 
on the Jack podcast this weekend. There's a new episode out right now with Jennifer Rogers. And for those who aren't listening to Jack yet, we're going to run a segment from this week's episode of Jack today here in the beans after the hot notes. And then we'll finish up with the good news. If you want to become a, if a patron of the Jack podcast as well, so you can get that ad free and early, uh, you can get it Saturday night before it drops on Sunday. Just like the beans, how you get the beans early. If you uh, go and subscribe to the beans at patreon.com slash Muller, she wrote, and you subscribe at the $5 level, you get both the beans and Jack. So very cool. And uh, also then, you know, we will have the good news after we listen to that segment of the Jack podcast. And if you have any good news you want to send in, you can send it to us by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. And we, we appreciate your good news submissions. We love them. Big, important part of the show. All right, we have a lot of stuff to discuss, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. First up, from the New York Daily News, Trump ratcheted up his war of words on Friday, saying that there would be, quote, death and destruction, unquote, if he's arrested in Alvin Bragg's probe of a hush money payment to porn actress Stormy Daniels on the eve of his election as president in 2016. Trump has aggressively aimed at Bragg in multiple provocative social media posts this week, calling him a George Soros-backed animal, which New York civil rights leaders criticize as racist and anti-Semitic. In one Truth Social post, Trump shared an article with a photo of him standing with a baseball bat next to a picture of Alvin Bragg. And this is a quote from a joint statement from Reverend Al Sharpton and a bunch of uh, Democrats in the House. This disgraceful attack is not a dog whistle, but a bullhorn of incendiary, racist, and anti-Semitic bile spewed out for the sole purpose of intimidating and sabotaging a lawful, legitimate, fact-based investigation. New York House Democrat leader Hakeem Jeffries condemned Trump's words, said their consequences could prove fatal. Quote, Trump's rhetoric is reckless, reprehensible, and irresponsible. It's dangerous. And if he keeps it up, he's going to get someone killed, unquote. The lower Manhattan courthouses were thrown into a frenzy Friday when a white powder substance was discovered in an envelope marked Alvin with the return address for Donald Trump. That's according to law enforcement sources. The letter included a note that said, Alvin, I am going to kill you. It was typewritten, followed by 13 exclamation points. The unknown substance, determined to be a bogus threat, by the way, was discovered in the DA's mailroom at 80 Center Street, where a grand jury has been hearing evidence against the former president since January in the hush money probe. A spokeswoman for Bragg, said the substance was immediately contained and that the NYPD Emergency Services Unit and the NYC Department of Environmental Protection determined it was not dangerous. She declined to comment on the envelope's contents. The NYPD is investigating. And in a related story from Hugo Lowell, The Guardian, Donald Trump repeatedly insisted Saturday night that he was not upset by expected criminal charges that might arise from the Manhattan DA's investigation into his hush money payment. And that was um, on a plane returning from a campaign rally in Waco, Texas, but not a cult. We're just going to have our rally in Waco. This is when he was traveling back from his first rally as a 2024 presidential candidate. He claimed during a recorded interview with four reporters aboard Trump Force One that he was unafraid about the investigation, even as he attacked the case and attacked media reporting about the case. I'm not frustrated by it. It's a fake investigation. We did nothing wrong. I told you that. The former president said before proceeding to lash out at the NBC News reporter on the plane who asked if he was frustrated. This is fake news. okay? and NBC is one of the worst. Don't ask me any more questions. Trump also acknowledged during the interview that he had no actual insight into the investigation. He said, I have no idea what's going to happen. 
before deciding that he supposedly knew what would happen anyway, claiming they've already dropped the case from what I understand. The remarks from Trump on the flight came during an interview with four reporters. The Guardian obtained the recording after this reporter confirmed to travel with the former president was bumped off the manifest that day before the trip over recent reporting that the campaign disliked. Let me read that again. Our friend Hugo Lowell was confirmed to travel with the former president. He was bumped off the manifest because Trump didn't like previous reporting that Hugo did. So, Hugo, you're doing something right. So the grand jury hearing the hush money case meets today, though we don't know if they're going to bring any last minute witnesses in or even whether the grand jury is meeting Monday today about this case. But they are meeting today. Michael Cohen told MSNBC Friday he didn't think he was being brought back in, but some reports suggest the DA is weighing bringing in someone else. If he does, and if it's Weisselberg, that could put a whole new coat of paint on this thing. Depending on how long a potential witness could take, the grand jury could vote to indict today or vote not to indict today. Uh, Or they could do that Wednesday. We don't know, but we'll keep you posted. You can follow indictments only on Twitter and turn on notifications. And I'll get that out to you as soon as humanly possible. Unless I'm, I don't know. I can't think of a, I can't think of a reason I I wouldn't put that out as soon as, as soon as uh, the news was available. And from Julia Vargas Jones at CNN, prosecutors in Brazil have agreed to a deal with George Santos in a case in which he's accused of defrauding a Rio de Janeiro area clerk for $1,300 over clothes and shoes in 2008. It's according to documents obtained by CNN. A petition from Santos's attorney requesting a deal says Santos would agree to formally confess to the crime and pay damages to the victim. That's according to CNN. And that is required under Brazilian law to pay restitution and damages to the victim. A memo from prosecutors agreeing to the deal last week asked the defense for assurances they have the ability to contact the victim to repay him before the deal is finalized. In a statement to CNN, the prosecutor's office acknowledged the memo but stressed that the deal is not final until all conditions are met. They don't trust him (laughs) any further than they could throw him. The petition from Santos's attorney filed in January requests a non-prosecutorial agreement in lieu of a trial for his client, arguing that Santos is now gainfully employed and re-socialized. The petition also requested permission for Santos to be contacted by the court via email or phone and participate in the proceedings virtually via video conference. Agreements can be reached in nonviolent cases where the sentencing minimum is under four years, just so you know. That's Brazil's law. Santos did not comment. When asked about this reporting, he ran and hid. Manu Raju chased him. CNN has reached out to attorneys for Santos in Brazil and the United States. In 2010, Santos told police he wrote bad checks from a stolen checkbook belonging to an elderly man his mother cared for to purchase items. After Santos left for the United States, Brazilian authorities could not find an address to serve him papers, intimating him to appear in court, which eventually led to the archiving of the case until it was reopened in January because they found him. (laughs) prosecutors could not comment further as the case is under a gag order and this is fucking fantastic from the associated press the parents of the teenager who killed four students at a michigan high school can face trial on charges of involuntary manslaughter the state appeals court decided this on thursday in a groundbreaking case of criminal responsibility for the acts of a child the murders would not have happened if the parents hadn't purchased a gun for ethan crumbly or if they had taken him home from Oxford High School the day of the shooting when staff became alarmed about his extreme drawings. That's what the appellate court said. 
The court noted that the legal threshold at this stage of the case is fairly low under Michigan law. Quote, whether a jury actually finds that causation has been proven after a full trial, where the record will almost surely be more expansive, including evidence produced by defendants, is an issue separate from what we decide today. That's what the court said in a 3-0 opinion. James and Jennifer Crumley are accused of failing to secure a gun and ignoring the mental health needs of their son before the shootings. Besides the death of four students, seven people were wounded. Crumbly, who's 16, pled guilty to terrorism and murder and could be sentenced to life in prison without parole. He was 15 at the time of the November 2021 shooting. And from Elon Ben-Zion at the Associated Press, tens of thousands of Israelis poured into the streets of cities across the country, 500,000 by the latest count, on Sunday night in a spontaneous outburst of anger after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu abruptly fired his defense minister for challenging the Israeli leader's judicial overhaul plan. I'll tell you about the judicial overhaul plan in a second. Put a pin in that. Protesters in Tel Aviv blocked a main highway and lit large bonfires while police scuffled with protesters who gathered outside Netanyahu's private home in Jerusalem. The unrest deepened a months-long crisis over Netanyahu's plan to overhaul the judiciary. This is the plan I'm talking about that sparked mass protests over the last 75 days. It's alarmed business leaders and former security chiefs, a strong concern from the United States and other close allies. Now, Netanyahu's dismissal of the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, signaled that the prime minister, Netanyahu, Bibi, and his allies wanted to barrel ahead with the overhaul plan. Gallant had been the first senior member of the ruling party to speak out against it saying the deep divisions were threatening to weaken the military. In a brief statement, Netanyahu's office said late Sunday the prime minister had dismissed Gallant. Netanyahu later tweeted, we must all stand strong against refusal. And then tens of thousands of Israelis poured into the streets to protest after his announcement, blocking Tel Aviv's main artery, transforming the Ayalon Highway into a sea of blue and white Israeli flags and lighting a large bonfire in the middle of the road. Netanyahu's decision came less than a day after Gallant, a former senior general, called for a pause in the controversial legislation until after next month's Independence Day holiday, citing the turmoil in the ranks of the military. Opposition leader Yar Lapid said that Gallant's dismissal harms national security and ignores warnings of all defense officials. Israeli's counsel general in New York City, Asaf Samir, resigned in protest. Netanyahu's government is pushing ahead for this plan, the parliamentary vote this week, on a centerpiece of the overhaul, a law that would give the governing coalition the final say over all judicial appointments. It also seeks to pass laws that would grant parliament the authority to override Supreme Court decisions with a basic majority and limit judicial review of laws. These are dictatorial moves. The constellation of laws would remove the checks and balances in Israel's democratic system and concentrate power in the hands of the governing coalition. This is kind of like Moore v. Harper here in the United States, where they want state legislators to be able to throw out votes and just cast their own slate of presidential electors. I mean, it's different because they just want to have the final say on Supreme Court decisions and be able to veto them and overturn all sorts of stuff. But they also say that Netanyahu's on trial for corruption charges has a kind of specific conflict of interest here. He's on trial for charges of fraud, breach of trust, accepting bribes, and three separate affairs involving wealthy associates and powerful media people. He denies wrongdoing and dismisses the critics who say he will try to seek an escape route from charges, legal overhaul. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
and from Chris Cameron at the Times. It was a name synonymous with failure. More than 80 years ago, the Army base in Blackstone, Virginia, was named George E. Pickett, the defeated Confederate general who led the disaster at Pickett's Charge at the Battle of Gettysburg. Now that base is the first of nine named for a Confederate to be redesignated by the end of this year. On Friday, Fort Pickett became Fort Barfoot in honor of Colonel Van Barfoot, a World War II hero and Medal of Honor recipient. Colonel James C. Shaver Jr., the base's garrison commander, said it was an honor to be the first base renamed and that Fort Barfoot was now the first army base in the continental United States to bear the name of a Native American soldier. The ceremony was the culmination of a years-long effort to purge the symbols of the Confederacy from the military. The nine army bases were originally named for Confederates during the Jim Crow era as part of a national movement to glorify the Confederacy and advance the lost cause myth. That's the myth that, you know, the Civil War was fought for states' rights. Yeah, states' rights to do what? Anyway, that's the lost cause myth. That's when these bases were named. Now, the issue of the base names had set off a struggle between former guy Trump and Congress amid a wave of demonstrations for racial justice in the summer of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. Trump refused to allow the bases to be renamed, going so far as to veto the annual defense authorization bill that included the renaming provision. Congress ultimately forced the measure through. They overrode his veto. A commission established by Congress then recommended new names, selecting a diverse array of American warriors, including women, black and Hispanic soldiers, and Colonel Barfoot, a Choctaw who served 34 years in the Army. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered the changes to be carried out by the end of this year. The Navy also renamed two ships this month as part of that initiative. All right, after this quick break, I'm going to play a segment of the latest episode of the Jack Podcast with me and Andy McCabe. We're going to feature our guest, former federal prosecutor, CNN legal analyst, law professor extraordinaire Jennifer Rogers. And then after that, stick around for the good news. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Nobody wants to spend their Saturday stuck on the couch because of what they did Friday night. Nobody wants to spend, you know, whatever day it is this week after Donald Trump gets indicted with a bit of a headache because they had a little too much champagne, you know. But now I use Z-Biotics when I want to have a couple of drinks. Z-Biotics is a pre-alcohol probiotic. It's the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by a PhD scientist to tackle rough mornings after drinking. And here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in your gut. It is that byproduct, not the dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Z-Biotics produces an enzyme to break that byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it the most. Just remember to drink Z-Biotics before drinking alcohol. Drink responsibly. Get a good night's sleep and you'll feel your best the next day. When I have Z-Biotics before I go out drinking, it completely changes how I feel when I wake up the next morning. I'm able to get up, go to the gym, tackle my to-do list, no shred of nastiness lingering from the night before. So give Z-Biotics a try for yourself. Go to zbiotics.com slash dailybeans to get 15% off your first order when you use Daily Beans at checkout. Z-Biotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee, 100%. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. That's Z-Biotics, Z-B-I-O-T-I-C-S dot com slash Daily Beans and use code Daily Beans, all one word at checkout. Welcome back. Joining us to explain what happened this week with the Corcoran and Little Testimony and document production is former Southern District of New York prosecutor, law professor and CNN legal analyst, Jennifer Rogers. Hi, Jennifer. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, you guys. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. 
So, uh, man, there's so much to talk about with respect to this whole uh, privilege battle and everything that's going on down here in D.C. I guess the first thing that occurs to me is like it definitely seemed like certainly the appeal side of this after Judge Howell's ruling went with lightning speed. I don't know that I've ever seen a court docket uh, move so quickly. What what did you think about that? I thought that if I were the first one to see that PACER notification and then you have to notify the rest of your team, good news, bad news, guys. Good news is they're moving fast. Bad news is they're submitting at midnight and we're submitting at 6 a.m. I mean, that's just nuts. I have never seen anything quite like that. I mean, you want them to move fast, but holy moly, they don't think they got any sleep at all that night. Yeah, no doubt. The DoorDash uh, vehicles were rolling up to uh, the the uh, DOJ main building, I'm sure, all night long to keep those folks fueled and running. It was um, really, a, I think, a really um, impressive response from the court, acknowledging how quickly this needs to get resolved. And of course, they had the, the deadline of the impending uh, subpoena, so for Corcoran's you know, follow-on uh, grand jury appearance, which, of course, um, seems to be taking place. Uh, so, yeah, they had to get it done and they got it done, which is not always the way the court works. What do you think, Allison? Yeah, I've never seen anything like that. I think the closest I've seen is when uh, I believe it was Mark Short or Greg Jacob had to testify and they they brought him in the next day. But I don't know that 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 I've seen the response, uh, you know, where you have to file uh, per, you know, per the order. Uh, go that quickly. And that whole midnight to 6 a.m. is when DOJ had to respond. It was like, it reminded me of that uh, bit in Clueless where they're like, should we bring him some snacks? Yeah, that would be pretty dope of us. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, But yeah, but here we are. And, and it looks like, at least from what Hugo Lowell's sources at The Guardian are telling him, uh, is that Corcoran, in per Judge Howell's order, which happened the Friday before, uh, which was her last day on the bench because Bozberg was sworn in on Saturday. That's right. Um, th- that his deadline to hand over the documents, and we'll talk about these documents in a moment because they're pretty interesting. That's what I thought the news was, you know, uh, for that particular day because news was dropping every five minutes. Um, that he had until Wednesday to hand over those documents, and that's perhaps why the appellate court. Uh, moved so quickly was so that they could meet that deadline. I'm I'm not sure about that, but that that that's according to credible sources from Hugo Lowell. What do you think about that, Jennifer? Is that something you've ever seen? Such a short turnaround for handing stuff over? I think the Eastman emails they only gave him a couple of days. Judge Carter in California, so it doesn't seem too unusual to give him, you know, three business days to hand over uh, things that were pierced by um, crime fraud exception. Yeah, it's not a a large volume of information. You know, it's not like they're saying put together boxes upon boxes and, you know, that sort of thing. And the other thing is, and and this is speculative, but, you know, we're talking about the classified and other sensitive government documents and the possibility still out there that they may not be finished getting back documents from Donald Trump, right? So this notion of they keep trying to get stuff, they keep getting, you know, thwarted at every turn and and so on. It may be the case that he is still holding on to some documents that the government needs back. So that might also have been a reason for the court to move so swiftly. Like there's national security implications here. I think that's a great point. And I think, um, Jack Smith's team's series of legal filings, particularly the motion for uh, 
the contempt motion really indicates to me that there is a burning kind of a, uh, a lingering feeling on the part of that team, likely that there's more out there that they haven't, uh, that they haven't gotten. The other thing that really kind of struck me this week was if we go back to Howell's order from last Friday, she, we haven't seen the order yet because it's still under seal, but uh, I guess sources who have seen it have been talking to the media and they indicate that Howell wrote that Jack Smith's office had made a prima facie showing that the former president had committed criminal violations, which is just unbelievable to me because it's almost like it's not proving the case for obstruction of justice, but it's it's a significant showing of evidence supporting that case. So it's clearly a an indicator of things to come. The first of those is, I think, an indictment. If Jack Smith's team at this point, without Evan Corcoran's disclosures, you know, uh, having pierced the privilege, if they're able to come in and make that prima facie showing to the judge that there's criminal activity in the interactions between um, Corcoran and Trump, the idea that they're not going to indict him for something, likely obstruction of justice, it's almost a fait accompli that we will see an indictment. Do you do you see that the same way or Am I being a little bit too uh, lean forward? No, I I frankly thought that they had enough before this latest development, right? I mean, from the information about all the back and forth and the false certification and the surveillance footage of people moving boxes and then more and more things keep showing up. Uh, and then Trump keeps talking about them, yeah. right? All of which <laughs> statements are usable in court against him. So I thought really they had the case wrapped up already. This is almost like icing on the cake, the notion that now his lawyer has to go in there and admit that, you know, yes, in fact, this is what he told me. And it turns out not to be true. Uh, There's also that amazing conversation that I can't wait when we finally hear how it went the day that they got the subpoena for the surveillance footage. And then the two of them talk on the phone. I mean, to be a fly on the wall for that, that would have been fascinating. Uh, Mr. Trump, we're getting this subpoena that says they want surveillance footage. Can you tell me what that will show? Um, you know, that's going to be really good stuff. So I kind of thought they already <laughs> yeah. had that case in the bag. And so now I agree with you. Fate accompli for sure. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, just look in these very specific rooms, please, and uh, sign a letter saying that everything was handed over. And uh, then before we turn over this, please move some boxes for me. Also, Walt, bring me a Diet Coke and move some boxes. <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's maybe um, a, a little like dramatization of what went down in that phone call. But we don't know. It could have just been like, hey, I'm your lawyer. We got a subpoena. What do we do? Uh, it, you know, it could it could have been totally innocent. Um, and, and if it was, it wouldn't have been pierced by the crime fraud exception and wouldn't have to be testified about. And we don't know because these filings are under seal what documents and what testimony, although we do know something there was public reporting from ABC that there were six different lines of testimony that he had to that were pierced by crime fraud exception. But we don't know which ones those are. We don't know which documents uh, are being handed over per the crime fraud exception. We don't know which ones are handed over because of third party exception. We don't know which ones are being handed over because they didn't meet the work product doctrine. I mean, there's all sorts of those things that we would see in an unsealed filing that we've gone over before, particularly, you know, I've learned about this by watching the Eastman Chapman emails, uh, you know, drama that happened for most of last year. But can you tell us uh, just for uh, for like a little legal education, prima facie showing that the president had committed criminal violations? And what does that mean? And what does it mean? What do you need? What sort of standard of evidence 
um, do you have to have in order to pierce the attorney-client privilege? Because it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. So, well, you've been throwing around some legal terms yourself, Allison. I don't know. You might be uh, the one to answer this just as well as I can. But it's so there's a hierarchy of these standards of proof in American law, right? And it's kind of frustrating because only one of them really has any correlation to a numeric system or something where you can really pin it, right? And that's the the preponderance of the evidence. You know, if it's more than 50% likely that something happens, preponderance of the evidence, then you know that's that standard. The rest of them are all so mushy, right? Beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest one, the criminal standard for trial. Uh, you have clear and convincing evidence, which is somewhere in between um, preponderance and beyond a reasonable doubt. I personally think of that as 67%, but I have no idea why. I mean, it, that's, that's not an official thing. Um, then below the preponderance, you have probable cause, which is the standard you need to charge someone with the grand jury or um, to get uh, wiretaps, that sort of thing, um, arrest. And then you have prima facie. And below that, you have uh, reasonable suspicion. You know, there are terms for when you can pull someone over uh, in a car, for example. Uh, and even below that, the standard Andy knows well for starting a criminal investigation, say at the FBI. So it's really hard to, to peg these to anything except in relation to each other, I think. Um, but but prima facie is going to be uh, something concrete, more than in just a suspicion, something based on evidence, in fact, not reaching the level of probable cause, um, but but something that, that you can kind of to put your hooks into. So she would have required not just a theory, um, but a showing of, of evidence that in fact, this, this should be pierced because Corcoran was either engaged in a crime or a fraud with Trump or was being used to facilitate a crime or a fraud that Trump was trying to perpetrate. So yeah, and it seems like the latter in this case, and I just have one quick follow on question. I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, Andy, but how do you how do you square as a federal prosecutor? You were former federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York. Um, the probable cause to indict versus the federal criminal code requirement that you have to be able to obtain and maintain a, a conviction upon appeal, obtain a conviction and maintain it upon appeal, because that requires beyond a reasonable doubt. So there's that. There's a huge gap there between the probable cause needed to indict and the beyond a reasonable doubt and to be able to maintain how do you, where how do people square that is that the old prosecutorial discretion that comes in you know th that's such an interesting question and when you're a prosecutor and you're actually making these decisions you don't think about it in terms of probable cause you think about it as am i going to win this case like is this a case that i'm going to win um so you're thinking about it more in terms of beyond a reasonable doubt um but you know as a as a constitutional matter, like, I don't know, could you, could you, I don't know if anyone's ever done this. Could you challenge a case saying, you know, probable cause uh, is an unconstitutional standard because you need beyond a reasonable doubt to convict me. I mean, I don't, I don't know how the, 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 the problem there with that those two together would, would result in any litigation. But I, I can tell you as a prosecutor, you're thinking of, uh, the beyond a reasonable doubt standard when you charge, because that's that's what you need to charge. Um, and, you know, in the federal system, when you can go into the grand jury with just one witness, if you want, because hearsay is allowed, um, you know, it may be that 
you go in with less than beyond a reasonable doubt because you don't need it, you know, the indict the ham sandwich and that whole sort of thing, um, knowing that at trial, of course, you're going to bring all of these witnesses in person and you're going to chase down a couple of other leads that you might have um, as you get up to trial. Things are always happening. You're always continuing to investigate uh, be- in part because you're then meeting with your witnesses to prepare them for trial. And so you always learn new things and kind of chase those down. So typically evidence does get stronger. Um, but you're right. It is very weird that you have these very different uh, burdens of proof that you need to prove at, at different stages of the same exact case, the same exact prosecution. I think the it, it makes sense in a way if you think about it as a DOJ policy or a direction to prosecutors. Like we don't want you bringing cases just on a wing and a prayer. You've got probable cause doesn't mean you know we should be out there indicting every single person that you have probable cause on. We should be indicting only those people that you believe. You actually have more than that. You can prove this case at trial. You can sustain the conviction at appeal. It it would seem to have a great, um, not a narrowing, but really, um, you know, prioritizing those cases that are the most serious and the ones where you have the best evidence. Um, but let me ask you one more question about prima facie showing, and this is just kind of a technical matter. Maybe, maybe this is for me more than it is for the <laughs> listeners. Um, it in my it. My understanding is, uh, particularly in a in a situation like this, where they have to come in and make a prima facie showing uh, of a crime or fraud that's being committed in this otherwise privileged uh, exchange between the attorney and client, I th- don't they have to actually provide some evidence of each element of whatever specific fraud it is they say was being committed? Like they, it's not just saying. Hey, we think that they were criming here or frauding here. It's they have to come in and say, we think that this conversation was uh, an act of obstruction of justice, let's say. And here's the evidence we have for that. Um, and to kind of, you know, that whatever that it's the minimal showing, I guess, but it's it's got to be evidence that covers each element of the crime. Or maybe I'm thinking about it too com- in a too complicated. I mean, way. I don't think it's that precise. Like, in other words, I don't think you would do with the judge the way that you would do with a jury, maybe, and say, "Here are my elements," and then you check them off in the sure. summation as you go through them. Because for obstruction, I think you're right because it's it's not obstruction unless you both know that there's some sort of investigation going on and you do something affirmative, right, to to meddle with that in some way. But I could see like, like, what if the crime is some sort of like bank fraud? You're not going to go in there and be like, well, we have evidence that they knew that the institution was FDIC insured or that it was in the the venue that we're in. I mean, so I don't think it's that quite technical with respect to the elements. But in this case, you're right that they can't just go in there and say it's obstruction. They're going to need to show a little bit more to demonstrate you know, what what they're talking about here in this particular case with the classified uh, documents that were taken. Got it. Got it. Uh, let me ask you a- another question. From public reporting, we know that Trump, they say Trump is not likely to appeal to the Supreme Court and that Corcoran is not likely, is not expected to plead the fifth. First of all, why wouldn't Trump appeal to the Supreme Court? Isn't that his thing? Isn't that his dance? And And without pleading the fifth, does that mean that uh, Corcoran's not a target? So I think that Trump didn't appeal because he knew he would lose. And not just like he knew he would lose, but he always wants to appeal anyway to delay. 
um, he'd have to get a stay from a justice on the Supreme Court uh, in order to make this mean anything. Right. Um, so I think he knew that there was just no way in the world he would get that stay. And, you know, it doesn't seem to bother him too much, but I think these losses are a little bit embarrassing that he goes and he loses. And so I think they just decided that was just a complete no go. Yeah, plus, Chris Kyes might only have like a couple dollars left in his three million dollar <laughs> retainer. And, you know, it's like maybe you don't want to spend this money on this particular thing until maybe. the check clears, the next check clears. Um, and then, yeah, I think um, I would would be shocked to hear um, that Corcoran would take the fifth. I mean, first of all, I don't, don't think there's any point because one of two things would happen if he did either they would challenge that because he's not seen to be a target. The working theory, at least as far as reporting is concerned, is that he was duped. Basically, he was told a lie by Trump and then passed it along, which means that he didn't do anything wrong, which means that he doesn't have a good faith belief that he has criminal exposure, which means that he's not supposed to be able to take the fifth. Um, so DOJ could challenge that invocation, but also they would just turn around and give him immunity because, again, he's not their target, at least as far as we're hearing. Um, so there's no point. And also think about it. You're a lawyer. You know, you want to maintain your reputation. You go in there subject to this order and you take the fifth, basically suggesting, OK, yeah, I think I might be in criminal jeopardy. I don't think he wants to do that just for purposes of his own reputation, too. I gotcha. Um, something else, um, that, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about these documents. Apparently there's handwritten notes, transcriptions of audio, neat, uh, and invoices. What invoices? Any, any idea? Like what, what could these, like legal fee invoices to prove that he was the attorney? I, you know, I don't, I don't know what, what sort of, I don't get it. Wasn't there something about a storage space off-site where there were some classified documents held? I think there was a local storage space where the original shipments, they went from the White House to some sort of storage in Virginia, then to Florida into another storage space, and ultimately things made their way into Mar-a-Lago. So could be with that. I think uh, certainly the notes, the handwritten notes, probably notes that he took um, – uh, after conversations with Trump, be that on the phone or in person. And then, of course, they talked a little, we've seen a little bit of reporting about these transcriptions of audio, which I can only imagine are maybe he's making like audio notes, you know, like after the June 24th phone call, he makes a, you know, he records himself talking like, I just talked to the client, I said this, he said that sort of thing. And then someone else in his office transcribes those uh, later, I think you know there there are some attorneys that work that way. But other than that, I can't imagine what the audio would be that they're transcribing. Yeah, I mean, I assume he's not recording conversations with his client. Oh my god! That <laughs> very, just... Oh lordy, there are tapes again. Uh, <laughs> but like, I mean, I, that's a really old timey thing to do, right? I mean, yeah, oh, that's full on under the like... age of seventy five. Actually, dictate and then have their secretary <laughs> type up those notes anymore. But that brings up a really good point, Andy, when you were talking about the evidence required to get, you know, the prima facie evidence required to to pierce the attorney client privilege, um, you know, that could be a third party who was transcribing those notes. Um, and, and that's what I was wondering, like, how did DOJ know they existed to subpoena them? Um, how, you know, because Judge Beryl Howe didn't just get them and then hand them over. Um, they had to have some sort of knowledge of them. And that's where I think maybe some of these third party witnesses come into play. And that brings me to Jennifer Little, who 
is she? And according to public reporting, she's a well, we know she's a lawyer for the Fulton County matter, another whole crime thing that's going going on. Um, she was ordered to testify this last week uh, by Judge Beryl Howell with under the crime fraud exception. Uh, no documents, though. She didn't have any documents to turn over. Um, there are photos of her on in fa- on Facebook at Mar-a-Lago in May of 2022, which is before, you know, the, the DOJ came down to collect their first batch of classified documents where Corcoran and Bob put together that letter. But I'm thinking maybe, uh, and of course, everything's speculation, everything's under seal, but Alina Haba was also uh, called in to testify because she was searching Mar-a-Lago uh, pursuant to the New York Attorney General Tish James's case looking for accounting stuff. So perhaps, I don't know, maybe Jennifer Little was searching for documents pertaining to the Fulton County case and might have some input there. We know that she had originally been on, you know, team cooperate when she, you know, she advised Donald Trump, you should be more cooperative here, uh, along with Chris Kyes, who who lost the day on that argument, clearly. Uh, and then she left shortly after Corcoran came on. So maybe she was dismissed because, you know, she's she was telling pe- people to be cooperative instead of fighting everything. But other than that, we just don't know that much about her. Yeah, I think that's uh, a really interesting angle. And it's now that we have by this count, at least two attorneys who are handling other items, uh, whether it's a New York AG case with Haba or Fulton County for Little. The important thing to remember is in this context, this being the piercing of the privilege and forcing um, Jennifer Little to testify, that's relative to her exposure to things that are relevant to the Jack Smith investigation, not Fulton County, not New York AG or anything else she might be doing. So yeah, to, in order for her to have seen or heard or discovered something relevant to that grand jury investigation, she had to have been at Mar-a-Lago somehow involved uh, in the document case or the handling of the document case or the obstruction of the document case, however you want to look at it. So it's hard to say, um, obviously, from your uh, research photograph with her down there, she's she could have been in any of those roles. We. We talked last Friday about the significance of DOJ's really uh, their focus on the telephone call on June 24th between Corcoran and Trump and how just knowing that they had spoken on that day from a telephone, you know, phone company records would not be enough to make it evidence in the motion. They had to have had some intel about what was discussed on that phone call, and that would not have come from a recording. unless it was made by one of the participants, which seems unlikely, it likely came from someone who was sitting in the room with Trump or maybe sitting in the room with Corcoran and heard half of the conversation and was it, and then was then able to, um, you know, indicate that to, uh, to the grand jury or to, uh, to the investigator. So yeah, a lot like the Pence phone call, right? Exactly. That January 6th Pence, Pence phone call. And, exactly. and that would be a little, yeah, you know, a little evidence. And that's, I was thinking of that too. Like somebody had to witness this stuff. Yeah. Because Jennifer, like that phone call doesn't become relevant to the piercing of the privilege until you have some content until you can say what they discussed. The fact that an attorney talked to his client the day he received a subpoena from DOJ is, is not unreasonable or outrageous by any stretch. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you start to think about um, how you breach the attorney-client privilege. One way, of course, is to allow a third party who is not part of the privilege to listen in. So, you know, 
if that was the case, if someone who's not part of the privilege was there, you wouldn't have an, a genuine attorney-client privilege anyway. Right. Um, but you could also see a scenario in which someone kind of comes into the office and hears a little snippet, you know, and then goes out. So maybe it's not enough to really waive the privilege, but they hear enough that when they're interviewed, they can say, I overheard this and you know, that gives them enough to 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 go in and say that that there's the crime fraud exception. So we don't know, of course, but um, you're right. They definitely needed more than just subpoena comes in and phone call between lawyer and client happens. Yeah. So typically, let's say they have that conversation and another lawyer is present in the room with Evan Corcoran. If it's another lawyer who's working on the same representation, that probably would not waive the privilege, right? But if that lawyer later cooperated with the government, maybe now you have you have the information you need to know what the content of that call was that allows you to move to get the privilege pierced. I don't know. Maybe that's too complicated. No, but we also we also don't know if that phone call um, has to be testified about because of the crime fraud exception or because of third party waiver or you know yep. something else. We we aren't we don't know the the specifics of each of the lines of questioning and documents and what privilege was pierced by what you know. Uh, so well, I I'm assuming at some point we'll find out. I love how Judge Howell when she left, she's like, look, as they asked about her legacy, and she's like, well, it's all under seal, so uh, you know, there's really not any. <laughs> So it'll be, she's like, we'll know in like 50 years. So I don't know. But, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm exaggerating there. But one last question before um, we let you go, Jennifer. And this is about the Manhattan DA's case. We've been, you know, looking about, looking for imminent indictments from the Manhattan District Attorney. And I know that this isn't under Jack Smith's purview, but it does have national, federal national security implications because Donald is now calling for violence on his social media platform. Um, by the way, his social media platform is under federal investigation by your former office at the Southern District of New York for potential Russian money laundering. But uh, I digress. <laughs> Let's not get distracted. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yet another crime. <laughs> but he posted on Truth Social calling for death and destruction if he's indicted. He then posted a photo before that. He posted a photo of him with a baseball bat next to Alvin Bragg. Could this kind of behavior as a prosecutor lead to the DOJ asking for pretrial detention, or are we still pretty far away from that? Yeah, it's so outrageous. I mean, <laughs> just the notion of being targeted in that way and, and the intimidation attempts and threats. Are, I mean, I, it's, I don't even know what to say about it. I mean, I don't think Alvin will be distracted or deterred, but uh, I, I mean, it's just, there are just no words. Um, but um you know, the problem in New York, um, in New York State, um, which is where the Manhattan DA would charge, is that um, we had some bail reform up here in New York uh, a few years ago. It is very, very hard to detain someone pretrial. Um, now in New York State, uh, effectively, the only reason you can detain someone is if they are a flight risk. Um even if someone is dangerous, it's very, very hard to detain them um, or even put bail on them. Most people are now released on their own recognizance. Um, so even if this were personal threats, you know, you could see how they would have a tough time detaining him. Threats that are more, oh, gee, if you do this to me, people are not going to be happy. People should be outraged. This is outrageous. You are a, what was it? I don't need a psychopath, you know, whatever the language was. Um, animal. He called him. He used the old dehumanization tactic to, you know, help promote violence against outgroups by calling yeah. him an animal. I mean, all 
unbelievably horrible things. Um, but the point being in New York state, it's, it's very, very hard to detain anyone, even people who are personally dangerous themselves. Um, and you know, so if Donald Trump were on, were, were charged with a violent crime and made an explicit threat of violence towards Alvin Bragg, um, maybe, but this is not that. And so I don't think there's any chance of pretrial detention um, at all. Um, you know, I think you also wanted to talk about a gag order. Um, that's certainly more possible. Um, we know that um, when Roger Stone was tried, he ended up under a gag order and Paul Manafort did too uh, with Amy Berman Jackson for their shenanigans. So, so that's certainly more possible, I think. Um, but the detention is is not going to happen. Um, and I've been thinking about, you know, because of course, any statements by a criminal defendant are um, admissible if they're relevant uh, in a trial. So I've been thinking about whether there would be a way for these statements of his that he's now making to come in at this trial, if there's any way that this becomes relevant. Um, and I, I don't know. I can't think of a theory right now that makes it obvious, but I will tell you that the DA's office is collecting these statements um, and that they will certainly be ready to use them uh, if it becomes relevant, if there's a way that they can to make them admissible. Um, it's really horrific stuff. If, if you're trying to prove witness intimidation in, in a different in another matter, I think it could be used as a totality of evidence kind of thing to prove a pattern of behavior. We saw it in the in the Mueller report uh, in volume two under obstruction of justice uh, for that, too. Uh, so I, I could see I could see them coming into play that maybe is that kind of evidence to just sort of show a pattern of behavior. Maybe. I mean, you know, you just have to think, though, this is a if it is what it is you know, supposed to be what people are talking about it being uh, a prosecution about falsifying business records uh, and then maybe intending to uh, benefit your campaign improperly, you know. So unless it steers more towards something like you say, witness intimidation, I don't know that it would come in. But, um, you know, I, I think it, it still remains crazy that he's saying these things, not only because of what they are and what they can do, but for his own self-preservation reasons. I mean, Donald Trump, if he's good at anything, he's good at self-preservation, right? Um, and so some of these statements he makes are just so, uh, you know, don't seem to make a lot of sense from that perspective. Yeah. So in that regard, it's like, if you're on this prosecution team, it's like, just stay tuned because there's no limit to what he'll say or how often he'll say things. It's often to his own detriment. And, you know, yeah, it looks like a business, likely a business records case. Um, and then having to rely also on, you know, campaign finance problems to, to, to bootstrap it up to the felony. But who knows? We're a long way from a prosecution here. I mean, witness intimidation. Sure. That is that on the menu? I mean, no doubt. Everything's on the menu with this guy, uh, and this, and this team of, uh, kind of the gang that couldn't shoot straight. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, he could he could run the 18s, right? Just run title 18, the whole thing, all the entire <laughs> title. It's one thick book. 
Yeah, get a, a perfect score, so to speak. Um, I prefer to go nil. That's just me. Thank you so much for helping uh, break this down and talk about the the legal ramifications. Uh, everybody must follow Jennifer Rogers on Twitter if you aren't already. And uh, we appreciate your time so, so much. Uh, CNN legal analyst, law professor, and former federal prosecutor at the Southern District of New York. Jennifer Rogers, appreciate your time today. Thanks, you guys. This was a lot of fun. I'll come back anytime. Oh, we're going to hold you to that. Thanks so much, (laughs) Jennifer. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. I know how much you love your dogs because I know how I feel about mine. I want the best for her. So I pay close attention to what's in her food and how healthy it is. What I found is that a dog eating kibble every day is like a human's diet being made of only processed foods. This is why I use Maeve Raw Food for Dogs, formulated by PhD veterinary nutritionists with real human-grade ingredients and designed to meet your dog's nutritional needs. It's amazing. It is protein-rich. I love Maeve Raw Food for Dogs. That is just as easy as kibble. And that's the key, right? Raw food for dogs that is just as easy as the kibble, and it's supplemented for seven essential health benefits, including gut health, immune function, oral hygiene, skin and coat health, hip and joint health, mental health and anxiety, and growth and early development. Most dog parents see results in 28 days or less. I love how there's no prep, no mess, no thawing. I just open and pour. It is that simple. Those are the reasons my dog Olive and I love Maeve. And you can get $40 off your first order at Meet Maeve. That's M-E-E-T, Meet Maeve, M-A-E-V dot com slash Daily Beans. I believe every dog owner should try Maeve. Olive loves the stuff. She gets even more excited about uh, around mealtime than she used to. It's pretty adorable. She's so lucky. Who else gets to eat their favorite meal every day? I wish I could. So make the switch to raw today. Right now, Maeve is offering $40 off your first order at meetmave.com slash dailybeans. Again, that's meetmave, M-E-E-T-M-A-E-V.com slash dailybeans to receive $40 off your first order. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, I'd love your thoughts about the Jack uh, podcast. If you haven't heard it yet, the squares on the floor for cats are going really, really excellently. You can send that in. (laughs) Tell us how it goes. If you have a shout out to somebody that you love or a small business in your area, send your pod pet pics as tax. If you don't have a pod pet, you can send an adoptable pet in your area. Whatever you want to send us, any good news at all, send it to us at dailybeanspod.com. And click on contact. First up from Sharon in Manchester, pronouns she and her. Dear Leguminati, I've been meaning to send you pictures of my froggy fuckfest orgy that occurs annually in my pond with incredible regularity for years now. Sharon, you've been holding out on us. (laughs) Frogs start arriving from God knows where from around the 13th of February and the frog orgy begins in earnest with dozens of them shagging away until at least mid to late March by which time my really quite small pond is bulging with clouds, as I call them, of spawn. I've created a collage to show you some of the participants and their er, offspring. I live in Manchester, UK, with my adorable rescue, Birdie, who survived six months feral and six months in a shelter before coming to live with me in February of 2022 after my adorable feisty 14-year-old Bengal runt Tinker crossed the Rainbow Bridge 
Oh, big hugs, Sharon. That's so hard. Birdie mostly ignores the frogs, unlike neighborhood Tiger with thumbs who terrorizes them with his many digits. <laughs> I love polydactyl cats. I've been listening to you guys for a few years now, attracted by the swearing. I'm from Cardiff, South Wales, originally, where we are bilingual English and swearing rather than Welsh. Humor and political views. I'm a patron and listening religiously every day and week to the beans, Jack, and clean up. You are amazing beacons of fun, hope, and joy with feet firmly anchored in doing something to change reality. There are challenges here in the UK, but it blows my mind how hard it must be to live in the USA right now as your rights are eroding, lives threaten, and minds are poisoned. Thank you. Oh, and here we go. All right, so we've got the beautiful kitty. Hi. Hello. Oh, I bet this kitty clicks when they see birds. Like, this looks like a clicker kitty. I can just tell by looking. Oh, here's the frog orgies. Yeah, look at that. (laughs) That's a lot of frogs. (laughs) Thank you so much for sending. I I wonder what that sounds like. You know, like, hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. (laughs) Let me know if you see that. Please get it on video. Next up from anonymous pronoun she, her. Not a tape square cat trap, but a good old fashioned box style cat trap. Here's my pit hippo mix. Girl, Myra May, and her cat pal, Sadie Sue. Everybody enjoys Bark Box Day at our house. Ah, so the dog gets the stuff inside the Bark Box, and Sadie Sue gets to sit in the box. And there she is. How beautiful and cute and amazing. Thank you for sharing. Next up from Elizabeth, pronoun she and her. Here's a picture of my best bud, Marky, caught in a trap. I was skeptical because he's really a I'll sit next to a box but not in it kind of guy but I managed to catch him. We listen to you two every morning, getting ready for our day. He enjoys his first of many meals. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, many meals. And I drink coffee, wishing and hoping that one of the MAGA Republicans cosplaying at being a representative of the people will be held accountable for any of their grifts. Oh, me too, Elizabeth. Your show makes this excruciatingly slow purgatory of waiting bearable. So thank you. And Marky would like to shout out all the good orange cats and kitties. He feels that a certain former guy has given his color a bad name. Many thanks for all the hard work uh, you and the Beans team do. There he is in the tape square. (laughs) Well done, Elizabeth. Oh, he looks mighty and beefy. I love orange kitties. Next up from Anonymous. Thanks for doing the work you do. We need you. Tape square cat trap story. It's been three days since I placed my tape square. I did not catch a cat, but I did catch a two-year-old. The cat continues to carefully step around the tape square. (laughs) Excellent. Next up from Francine, pronoun she and her. Hello, my dear bean podcasters. I am the creator of the original Love Pad Frog Orgy Good News submission. Ha ha. It aired on June 24th on the episode Pardons and Subpoenas. Thank you for memorializing my freaky frogs almost daily. It brings a smile to my face, as well as all the endless frog orgy-related tidbits from other Beans listeners. I love you guys so much. I turn on your podcast literally before my feet hit the floor. Allison, your hello in the intro is my husband's alarm clock. It's my favorite way to start the day. Well, maybe second. Wink, wink. My pond should be coming to life soon, and I'm hoping to capture a picture of those horny toads in the act. Until then, here's a picture of what happened when I placed a square of tape on my living room floor. My husband began meditating on it. He's truly an odd one, but I love his endless loyalty and support. The second pic is of my dear Bella posing as Salvador Doggy. 
We unfortunately lost her last October. She was our first fur baby. We're in search of a new pup, and when we find them, I'll submit a what the mutt pick. Until then, keep making me laugh and enjoy all of your frog orgy-related good news submissions. Thank you. And there he is. You caught a husband <laughs> in the tape square. <laughs> nice job, Francine. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that submission. Oh, look at that doggo. What a sweet baby. What a sweet, sweet baby. Thank you, everybody, for your submissions. These are amazing and incredible. So many aminals. I really appreciate you. All right. We got another, what, week and a half, week and a day for voting in Wisconsin. So get to it. And um, I'll be back tomorrow with Dana. Thanks to Andy McCabe and Jennifer Rogers and Pete Strzok for agreeing to do podcasts with me. It's truly been a, a pretty incredible journey from where I was five years ago. So thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. I really appreciate you. Thanks to our patrons. You make the show possible. Everybody, I'll be back again tomorrow with Dana. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you, Wisconsin. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.